Our passage this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 8, if you'd like to turn there. We'll be starting in verse 27. The Word of God says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the Lord's day and yet another opportunity to hear from your word. We ask that you would help us each day to confess with Peter, you are the Christ. We pray that the preaching this morning would help us to do this not only with our minds, but also with our hearts and lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We just heard read for you where we've been heading in Mark for a while and then where we will be going. The first part of Mark has answered the question, who is Jesus? We've been heading towards that answer for some time. As we saw, we, in a way, the geography kind of helps us see. We've been weaving back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And through miracles and through conversations and through speeches to crowds and many different ways, Jesus has been declaring who he is. And it will reach its climax and pinnacle today with the confession of Peter. And then after that, we kind of plateau at that confession. And you'll see it becomes somewhat of a direct line at that point on to Jerusalem. And we will answer the question, why has he come but Mark does one thing here. We, we've been looking at the Pharisees and disciples who look at, at their belief and their unbelief and their missing who Jesus is. But before we get to this final confession, Mark is going to stick one more miracle in here for us. He, he's going to insert one more miracle in here for us in verses 22 through 26. And... <clears throat> We look at it and we ask, well, why is he doing this? It feels like he's moved us to this point to answer the question, who is Jesus? Why kind of just slide this little miracle in here? Well, first of all, because it happened. And since it happened and it is real, he is recording it for us. But like most of the miracles that take place in the book of Mark, they, they record an event, but they also have sort of a secondary purpose. We've seen some of them are prophetic that they point that Jesus indeed is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, that he is the Son of God. It's looking forward. And here we'll see there is instruction. It's almost, uh, this miracle almost functions as a parable, as it were, to teach the disciples. It instructs the disciples. It's interesting, when you look at the miracles of Jesus, there is no sort of routine or pattern that he walks through in the miracles. Each one happens a little differently. Sometimes someone simply touches him and they are healed. 
Other times he just speaks a word and he brings about the miracle. Perhaps he reaches out and touches. Sometimes just by thought that the person isn't even around and he heals that person from afar. We see this for a few different reasons. One, it shows us that Jesus isn't doing some sort of magic, some sort of incantation where he has a certain process and, and certain actions and words he has to walk through. No, he, he is power itself. He can perform these miracles with a, a simple word spoken, and so he does so. But also, it's because they're teaching us something. Each miracle, there's details. Jesus does certain things because he's either teaching the crowd or he's teaching the disciples something in the midst of the miracle. And then Mark, as he retells it, probably from Peter's own account of seeing it, as Mark tells us, it is meant to teach us and instruct us in the same way. And so in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, you see it here. It says, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So the friends of, of this blind man bring this one to Jesus to be healed. They, they've likely have either seen some miracles or they've heard about them at least. They think they know the formula. We just need him to touch you. If he will just touch you, you will be healed. And so they come and they beg him to do this. You get the sense that it's his friends who are, are more believing that Jesus can heal this man than the man himself. And so they bring him and ask Jesus to heal him. Before we move on and get into the heart of the passage, I, I do think it's important here just that we do know at least this blind man does not come to Jesus for healing unless his friends bring him. His blindness is not going to be in, addressed unless his friends bring him here before Jesus. Well, we're going to look at spiritual blindness and how the Lord overcomes and the Lord takes away our spiritual blindness. But it's important to note that spiritual blindness is removed. The Lord addresses spiritual blindness typically in community. He uses other people around us. Yes, the Lord can work through his word and your private time with the Lord and he will do so. But typically he is going to work through the church. He's going to work in community as we come together and sit under the word, as we confess truth together. Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us often to watch ourselves as we see the day approaching, that to watch our journey of faith, our endurance. And then it adds that we cannot watch ourselves by ourselves. We need others around us to help us who kind of see the need, who move us forward. And so as a note, as we look at spiritual blindness, we see this man come, but we see that he comes because of his friends, because of the community around him. And so they ask Jesus to touch him. You continue reading verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. <clears throat> Jesus touches him, but that first touch doesn't bring healing. But what we do have a picture of is sort of a closeness, a compassion, an intimacy. As Jesus takes this man by the hand, you can just picture it, sort of leads him through the crowd out to the village, out of the village to get away from people a little bit. The disciples follow, probably following behind. And then Jesus spit on his eyes. Sounds a little gross, but 
Something that would be when a healer, a powerful person, like their touch, their spit, something would seem to have power. And so Jesus, there seems to be a sense in which this man's faith needs to be brought to life. He needs that touch. He needs that compassion. He then spits, gets it in the man's eyes. And then Jesus asks a question. Not a question that he asked after a miracle. This is the first time he's going to perform a miracle and then ask a question like this. He says, do you see anything? It's almost like, did it work? (laughs) Do you see anything? I have touched you, I've laid you out here, I've spit, I put it on your eyes. Do you see anything? He asks this question because he's hearkening back, if you remember, to our passage before this where Jesus is in the boat with the disciples He's just fed the 4,000 and he has provided abundantly for the 4,000. And he is teaching them, he's trying to teach them that Jesus will provide, that indeed he is the bread of life. He is sufficient to meet the needs of the people. And the disciples get in the boat and you remember what happens when they get in the boat right after that. They realize they don't have much bread and there's not going to be enough bread for them on this trip. And you're kind of blown away like are are you serious he just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread and you're already worried about and so Jesus teaches them uses that opportunity of the bread to teach them an object lesson about the leaven of unbelief that is the unbelief of the Pharisees that unbelief can spread and it can start to to consume every area of your life a spiritual blindness as it were And they go right back to arguing about the bread, the disciples do. And so Jesus asks them a question. Do you have eyes to see this? Do you have eyes? Can you see what I'm telling you? Do you understand who I am? Do you have ears to hear? Do you understand that I am here, that I will provide for you? Are your hearts so hardened? And there is a spiritual blindness about the disciples. They're they're not understanding it. And so we're moving towards Peter finally confessing, finally having some idea. This little miracle slides in here and Jesus asks the same question. Do you see? I'm I'm working through this in in a way that you need. I'm caring for you in this miracle to build your faith. Do you yet see? We see the man's response. And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Interesting, again, we haven't had a miracle yet where it's only like partially successful. What's taking place? Is Jesus like running out of power here? This is a really hard case. He he's didn't get enough spit in his eyes. What, what is, well, obviously we know that's not the case. Jesus is instructing, he's teaching us something says, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. A few observations here. We see Jesus touching this guy multiple times. He leads him by the hand. He spits and touches his eyes. He touches his eyes again. This nearness, this intimacy, this closeness of Jesus. We've seen this touch of Jesus again and again through Mark to this point. 
When he comes to the demoniac and he touches him, Jesus doesn't become demon-possessed, but instead he sets the, the demoniac free. He, he brings freedom. When Jesus comes and the leper comes to him or the, the woman with the issue of blood come and they are unclean and you realize they reach out and they touch him and it's, oh no, Jesus is going to become unclean, but no, it is not that touch that makes him unclean, but instead he turns and he touches them and he makes them clean. He makes them whole. The touch of Jesus brings cleanness where there is uncleanness. It brings forgiveness where it is needed. Brings healing, brings freedom where it is needed. We begin to see this encounter, this touching of Jesus, what we need. This intimacy, this closeness of Jesus. We also see in this miracle, he's working specifically for what this man needs. Not just bringing healing, but the way that he does it. The way he leads them outside, the way he spits, the way he goes through all those steps. <clears throat> Each miracle he's done that, he's worked very specifically as the, the individual needs in order to bring about healing, in order to, to heal that spiritual blindness. One of the neat things about being a pastor is when people join the church hearing their testimonies of faith. And each one is very different. I mean, there'll be similarities from some, but, you know, some people have those testimonies of, you know, I never know, never knew a time when I didn't believe. Others of, of a more, they walk in the Lord, they walk into a service unbelieving and walk out believing. Others with a long battle and struggle. The Lord works differently in different people's lives. It's not that he just comes and, and just plops down here's one two three four how I work in everybody's life our faith our spiritual blindness is not overcome by adopting a religion it's overcome by this interaction this relationship with Jesus Christ as he works specifically and uniquely in your life perhaps you look at your life and you're frustrated with your providence and you just think I wish he would work in my life not like he is, but like he seems to be doing with all those people. It seems a lot easier for them. Their providence seems to be simpler. That They seem to be thriving. I'm confused. I don't see clearly. I don't understand what he's doing. And it's easy to kind of fall into that judging how the Lord is working in your life compared to somebody else's life. And we must understand that he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows exactly what we need. He knows what pace to work at in our life. He knows what to bring about in our life to overcome our spiritual blindness, to overcome our hardness of heart, to have us turn and confess him and trust in him. And in this miracle, he sees what this person needs is this sort of touch and this compassion and this care. And then finally, we see in here that sometimes the overcoming is just gradual. That the lifting of the spiritual blindness is gradual. It didn't all clear up for this man right away. Jesus isn't teaching the disciples through this. You, you might not understand it. 
who I am. It might not make sense to you yet. You might have eyes, but you don't see it yet. Ears, but you don't hear it yet. It's not a comfort to you yet. But I am going to continue to reveal it to you. It may be dim. It may be hazy. But I am going to reveal it to you. And we're going to see that with the disciples. That Peter is getting ready to confess Jesus. God is going to reveal that to him. And yet right after, as you heard read for you just a moment ago by Brian, right after that you see Peter, the disciples don't fully understand it yet. And really they won't until after the resurrection be able to say we see clearly and yet Jesus gradually is working. Again, encouragement to you. If it, if it just feels like, you know, I want to believe in Christ. I, I do, but it just, I have a hard time making sense of all this. Of, of Jesus being who he says he is. Of, of, of him working in my life the way he is. I, it's just, you know, the Lord gradually moves people along. And healing their spiritual blindness. We need to be patient with others. You need to be prayerful and persistent in your own life with the gradual work of Christ in that way. So we see he heals the man. And that sets us up now for Peter's confession in verses 27 through 30, where we'll finish our time. You don't see it too clearly in the way it's translated here, but in verse 27, it really changes. The pace of Mark is about to change. It says in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples. It has the idea that he, he set out. He, he set his face toward a direction. He is moving along. He has set out on his journey. And then you see there in verse 27, and on the way, he asks his disciples, you're going to see this on the way, on the way, a bunch more times here in the, towards the end of Mark. And what it's doing is it's putting it into context to us. If before it was, a, we saw the word immediately, straightway, and that was these back and forth to crowd, to, to crowds, to his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching, he's instructing, he's presenting who he is. As soon as Peter makes this confession, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And his instruction, his call to his disciples, everything that happens is on the way, on the way to the cross. And so we see this turn here. And then Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Again, Mark has been laboring to show us this point. The first 12 words of Mark. We've, we've talked about how Mark, you know, he doesn't build a big story. He just gets right to it. The first 12 words, the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus begins preaching and he preaches that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Why? Because Jesus is here. Because the Son of God is here. You remember when he heals the lame man later on and proclaims your sins are forgiven. Jesus is announcing his identity. He is divine. He can forgive sins. When he calms the seas, the disciples ask, who is this man? When he sits with the sinners and eat, the Pharisees ask, who is this that would sit with these people? Herod has heard about Jesus heard about all of the miracles that he is doing. Remember, he asks, who is this? 
the question has been asked. Jesus has been answering it in word and deed, and now it moves here to this face-to-face question. He asks, who do you say that I am? It's the, the plural you there. He's asking all the disciples. For a Pittsburgh translation, it would be, who do yin say that I am? The, the plural you. But you notice before he does that, he asks an easier question. He says, who do the people say that I am? You know, it, it's often easier to take a venture or a guess what someone else might be thinking than to out yourself on what you're thinking. You know what I mean? To represent somebody else. You've had that done. I, I've had that done to me. I, I've had it with a song that we've sung in the past. And someone will come and be like, you know, I've heard some people that they don't really like that song. Just so you know, I'm hearing that as you don't like this song. I've done that to other people. It's like a a cowardly thing to do. But I've done it to other people where it's like, you know, I think they were worried about. And perhaps you've done that. It's just, it's easier to represent someone else's thoughts than your own and so Jesus as he sort of eases into the question a little bit with the disciples he lets them off the hook just for a moment who do other people say that I am and so the answers that we've seen given out we saw it with Herod we saw it with others given out well maybe John the Baptist maybe Elijah maybe a prophet maybe whatever it is it's a teacher a prophet you're you're an elite important person but you know, one of many. You're one of the greats. So then Jesus turns to Peter, again, representing the disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? Within the context of of Mark 8 and how we've seen it grow, he's asking, do you see yet? Do, Do you still have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see yet? Is your heart still hard? Can you discern the truth? Do you understand? Or am I still just kind of like a fuzzy one walking about like a tree? Or do you know who I am? The next sentence is glorious, right? We'll turn the direction of Mark as Peter answers him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the king of kings, the king to end all kings, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, you have three roles of people who are anointed, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And the king kind of rises among those as you read about the anointing. He is the king of kings. He's the savior. He's the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. He is the king who will come and will make all things right, who will rule justly and will do so forever. The anointed one. You are the king. You are the Christ. Uh, How thrilling to hear it after the disciples again and again are are obedient. They're they're following Christ, but they just keep missing it. They, They just keep misunderstanding. And even as they go out, and do works in his name, they're still not fully grasping it. And they're being rebuked, and they're being challenged, and here, Peter gets it. You are the Christ. Now, in typical Mark fashion, he doesn't say what Jesus' response to Peter is. He just kind of immediately turns it and says, okay, we got that, now here's the mission of Jesus. 
I've tried my best in this study to not go to Matthew and Luke and John very much to fill in the details. They have more details, so it's tempting to do so, but I think in doing so, you miss what Mark is doing, and that is staying laser-focused on who is Jesus and why has he come and what does it mean to follow him. But I am going to go to Matthew just for a moment here, because it is when Peter makes this confession that Jesus says, yes, it's on that confession, it's on that truth, which I will build my entire church. The church will be built on this truth. Jesus is the Christ. He's not just a prophet. He's not John the Baptist. He's not a forerunner. He's not a great teacher. He, He is the exclusive king of kings to end all kings, the anointed one, the Christ. It's on that very truth that I will build my church. It's on that truth that Redeemer stands. And the minute we leave that truth, we're no longer a church. It's upon that truth that that Jesus says the gates of hell will not be able to stop the mission of the church when it's built upon that truth that Jesus is the Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the confession. There is no, we've, we've said this all along, Mark doesn't let you stay neutral. He doesn't let you just take a little piece here or there or allow Jesus to be an important part of your life and you'll just take, no. He is either the Christ, the King of the Kings, the Lord of Lords, or he is not. Because that's what he's claiming to be. So if he's not that, as C.S. Lewis would say, he's either a lunatic or a liar or he is Lord. And on this confession that Peter makes, Jesus says, yes, that, it's all on that confession, I will build my church. That is the confession we stand on. That is why we gather. That is why we worship. That is why we make much of Christ, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the anointed one. He is the fulfillment of that Genesis 3 promise of the seed that will be given to the woman. He is the fulfillment of that that covenant made with David as a king who will rule and reign forever. There is not a more important question for us to answer than that. Who do you say that I am? Corporately as a church, but you individually as well. Can you answer that question? As Jesus would look at you, can you answer that question? Maybe you don't have it all figured out. Maybe it's not completely clear. But can you answer that question? You are the Son of God. You are the Savior King. Matthew tells us when Peter makes that confession, Jesus pronounces a benediction over him. He says, blessed are you. You know why you're blessed? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal that truth to you. God the Father revealed it to you. When we stand and we confess together, we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. When we confess Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. You realize God is pronouncing a benediction over us. Blessed are you. You realize how blessed you are that you can do that? Because you didn't figure that out on your own. 
Flesh and blood didn't teach that to you. You weren't better than the next guy. You didn't merit it. You weren't just smarter. None of that. You were blessed by God. God revealed that to you. I would say no matter what we're going through, no matter the providence that God is working in our lives, if we can confess that Jesus is the Christ, that his benediction is pronounced on us because God the Father has revealed that to us. I know sometimes in the church, we, we talked about you feel queasy talking about you being set apart and different than everybody else out there. But we remind ourselves, it's not because we're smarter or we're better or we've, we deserve it more. It's because God has revealed his truth to us and we are blessed and his benediction is pronounced over us. Jesus overcomes our spiritual blindness and community. He overcomes it uniquely for each of us. He works in our lives in a unique way. We need to receive that providence from the Lord gratefully. But we need to continue after him faithfully. And then all of us need to be able to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? And there's only one right answer. The church is built on one answer. We receive the divine benediction from God with one answer. And it's the answer that God himself will reveal to us. Jesus Christ, he is the Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, our only hope. And upon that, we stand. Upon that, our church is built. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this confession made by Peter, but representing the disciples, and so in a very real way. Lord, the foundation of the church representing us. Lord, I pray, we confess it with our mouth. I pray that our hearts would believe it, that our lives would be ordered in such a way to show that it's a reality. Lord, that indeed we believe you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You, you are more valuable than anything else. You are our treasure and our goal. Lord, might you be pleased with the worship of your people. Might you be honored as we confess, indeed, Jesus is the Christ.